welcome to Doing the Work, the frontline stories of social change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. I'm excited to let everyone know about the Doing the Work collection in partnership with Things Social Workers Say. We've got hoodies, tees, mugs, and tote bags. Now you can rep the podcast you love while you're doing the work. Check out the link in the show notes and head on over to the store. Thanks for supporting this work. In this episode, I talk with Wayne Reed, who is a professional officer and anti-racism visionary at the British Association of Social Workers, Baswa. Wayne is my first international guest, and I'm so grateful. Wayne talks about how his understanding of anti-racism and social work and his motivation for speaking out and taking action was catalyzed by the murder of George Floyd. He discusses a number of projects he and Baswa have been working on specific to anti-racism and social work. Check out the link to his extensive portfolio in the show notes. These are excellent resources. Wayne shares what anti-racist social work means to him and how a concept that should be straightforward becomes very complex in application due to the embeddedness of white supremacy and racism in laws, policies, institutions, beliefs, and actions. We discuss how no one wants to say they are racist, but actions that support racist policies are being done in the regular operations of social work practice. Wayne talks about his pure, proactive, and unapologetic approach to anti-racism within social work and the need for this approach due to constantly being up against white supremacy, both as a black man and as a black male social worker. He discusses the need for social workers to practice anti-racism as part of our standards of conduct, not just with clients, but with colleagues, and the need for organizations to provide protections and support for social workers of color that explicitly address the many forms of institutional and interpersonal racism they experience, as well as steps organizations can take to transform into anti-racist organizations. Wayne also shares how he got into this work. I hope this conversation inspires you to action. Before we get into the interview, I want to let you all know about our episode's sponsor, the University of Tennessee Knoxville College of Social Work. First off, I want to thank them for sponsoring the podcast. UTK has a phenomenal social work program with the opportunity to do your bachelor's, master's, and doctorate of social work online. Of course, they also have excellent classes in person in both Knoxville and Nashville. UTK is committed to preparing social workers who will support human potential and dignity and challenge racism and all forms of oppression. Scholarships are available. Go to www.csw.utk.edu to learn more. And now, the interview. Hey, Wayne, thanks so much for coming on, doing the work. I'm really excited to talk with you. I've been following your work for a while. I know we got to connect on Twitter and now LinkedIn. And let's just start off by you letting us know, letting the listeners know um, a little bit about yourself and what you currently do. Okay, thank you, Shimon, for having me on doing the work. I really appreciate that. Um, my role, I work for an organization in England called the British Association of Social Workers. We are a UK-wide uh, organization, but I work uh, in the England team. Um, 
my work over the last uh, just over 12 months since George Floyd's murder has been um, primarily uh, around anti-racism in social work. Uh, although I do have a, a sort of substantive role, uh, Baswa, where I'm a generic um, professional officer and I'm involved in various aspects of social work uh, in terms of specialisms uh, such as mental health, criminal justice, etc. Um, but as I mentioned, over the last 12 months, a lot of my work has been uh, focused really on anti-racism in social work and I've been involved in various uh, initiatives and projects, um, which has been really fruitful. So, yeah, I'm so interested to have that conversation because it seems that historically anti-racist social work has been more discussed in England than in the United States. Right. Um, and you're my first international interview, so ah, I'm on it. You get cre- you get the credit the, the credit for that, right? <laughs> um ah. So I I'm wondering like maybe if you could talk a little bit about your experience with the history of anti-racist social work in England and now what is maybe different and, you know, what's happening now and kind of the direction you Mm -hmm. see things going. Okay. I mean, my own personal um, involvement with anti-racism in social work, to be honest, has been very brief just during that period I've described uh, since George Floyd's murder. Uh, It was that uh, incident that really... um, I guess, kick-started me, instigated me uh, to become more uh, outspoken and more uh, vocal about my opinions about racism within social work specifically. Um, in terms of the profession and its history with anti- anti-racism, uh, I only really became aware of anti-racism in social work, again, around the time of George Floyd's murder, as, you know, in terms of the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement globally. Uh, suddenly that term... Um, sort of came on my radar, having worked in social work for around, uh, well, social work and social care, because they are distinct uh, in the UK. But having worked in that arena for, you know, the best part of 20 years, I'd never really heard of anti-racism, to be honest. Um, There was a history and there is a definite um, core fundamental um, aspect to social work in terms of um, anti-oppression and anti-discrimination. Uh, And those were values and ethics which uh, I was um, uh, sort of supported with and introduced to uh, by veteran social workers earlier on in my career. And then when I uh, undertook my degree to become a qualified social worker, you know, those were values that were mentioned, uh, you know, it's still fairly um, intrinsic, I think, to social work at that time. But sadly, over the last... um, 10 years or so since austerity that you may have uh, heard of possibly that's uh, impacted the UK um, I feel it's really slid off the agenda and then the uh, alignment um, of George Floyd's murder kind of brought all that into sharp focus of how uh, it was really impacting you know kind of uh, community communities and society and so on and minoritized uh, groups um, so, yeah, there was a lot of different uh, tectonic plates almost that just seemed to kind of align over the last year. But uh, I hope, you know, that gives some insight into how we've arrived at the point where we have uh, in England. Absolutely. You know, the work you're doing now focused on anti-racist social work mm-hmm. in England with BASW. What have you been doing? Tell, tell us about what you've been doing. Um, well, I've been doing a bit of this and a bit of that, really. Um, <laughs> there's a number <laughs> of different things. Um, so, 
there's a book called Outlanders, uh, the hidden narratives uh, of social workers of colour, which um, I compiled and co-edited with a social worker called Siobhan McLean, who's also uh, what's called a practice educator over here. Those are the people who would uh, support uh, social work students throughout their studies. Um, and Siobhan is also a publisher uh, as well. We had the idea of uh, coming up with a book um, and we came up with the name Outlanders because we just thought it described perfectly the experiences of social workers of colour uh, in England and the UK. Um, so that uh, publication includes essays, stories, um, poems and other miscellaneous works uh, from the perspectives of black and ethnic minority social workers specifically. So it's quite unique. So we're particularly proud of that. Uh, there's a group um, in my organization, Badwa, uh, that I've created, which is called the Black and Ethnic Minority Professional Symposium, or BPS. Uh, and that group consists of 15 social workers across England, all from different social work uh, specialist backgrounds. So some are in children and families, some might be working with adults, um, some might be in the mental health service, uh, for example. Um, so they're all in different uh, locations across England. But we come together to create a space for them to be able to offload because that's very necessary because of the, you know, institutional racism that we face in social work. Um, and also it's uh, a, a good space for us to be able to strategize and mobilize really in terms of some of the innovations uh, and campaigns and uh, resources, um, you know, that we want to kind of develop and look at. Um, there's various things, Shimon, that I could talk about. In terms of George Floyd's anniversary, for example, which has uh, recently passed, um, I authored a report uh, for Baswa, which uh, compiled all of the anti-racism in social work activities that have taken place across England, the UK, um, over that 12-month period uh, in terms of the anniversary. And it was very extensive. Uh, it's available on the Baswa website. Um, so again, you know, there's, there's all sorts of stuff uh, that I've been doing, really. I could I could go on, but I'll perhaps share my portfolio with you and you might be able to share that with uh, our listeners, perhaps. Absolutely, yeah. I can link that in, a, in the show notes and also a link on the podcast website. I wanted to come back to a couple things you've said, right? So the first, I think, is that, and, the, and these go directly, these connect together. The first is... um that you talked about that you've been working in social work for about 20 years mm -hmm. and hadn't heard of anti-racist social work, right? Yeah, and yeah. I can really relate to that as well. It took me a long time to come to that terminology. It was not taught in any of the programs yeah. um, in my education. Right. And so when I heard you saying that, I really resonated with that. And so then... You also talked about institutional racism in social work, right? And that's that's part of the institutional racism <laughs> is the fact that it's not discussed in education. Yeah. So, so then social workers are leaving and practicing social work in a certain way, right? Without this anti-racist framework exactly. analysis and practice. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of wondering if you could talk about that. Like, what does anti-racist social work mean to you? and look like you know in practice and, and i understand there's not going to be like one mm. clear way because different practice contexts but 
you know, like if you could kind of say what it means to you and kind of like what that means for you to put into practice. Okay. Um, for me, uh, I subscribe to the definition by uh, Ibram X. Kendi uh, in his book, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. I don't know if you're familiar with that book, Shimon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, it was a kind of, or it is a, a big hit over here as well. Uh, and the definition that he, um, that he outlines is that it's a belief that all races and ethnic groups are equal and deserving of the same opportunities and that anti-racism the crux of it really is about doing something so taking action about the existing inequality and although that might seem very straightforward i think in reality actually although it is simple it's just not seen in that simplistic way it's sort of overcomplicated. Um, you know, it really requires people to not be asking questions of, do we have any racism here? Or does institutional racism really exist? Um, it's more a question of it clearly does. There's an overwhelming um, base of evidence. I'm sure there is globally, not just in England. So it's sort of a case of why are people sat on their hands? You know, why aren't they doing something? And some of that points directly towards white supremacy for me. Um and I'm not saying that in a kind of, um, in a sort of, in a, in a way where I'm pointing the finger necessarily. It's more about people not recognizing those existing structures, um, processes and policies, procedures, etc., which are just inherently racist. They're just going along with them blindly uh, and not actually, you know, thinking critically or being self-aware about how that actually impacts and influences their decisions and their actions they're just taking the position that, well, I'm not racist. Do you know what I mean? Nobody wants to admit being a racist, but um, they are actually impacted by the racist structures and systems and things that are in place, and nobody's immune from that. Um, so I hope that, you know, kind of is coherent in terms of my perspective uh, on anti-racism. In terms of institutional racism, um, I've written quite a bit about that. Uh, and again, some of the articles will be available in the portfolio I send you. Um, they're all hyperlinks on there, so all the stuff is on the internet. Um, and in terms of social work, I think there's undoubtedly uh, indicators of uh, institutional racism, but so is there in many other professions. You know, social work isn't specifically institutionally, institutionally racist. Most, if not all, um, institutions and uh organizations to some degree are uh, is where on that spectrum they are um but they have to acknowledge it exists to begin with before they can even you know um judge where they are um so yeah that's that's my take on institutional racism and i suppose i'll just end that by saying that i um again i subscribe to the view of the um, william mcpherson report i don't know if you're familiar with that but that was a report that was uh, written um as a consequence of the murder of Stephen Lawrence, which was a huge, um, high-profile case in England in the 90s of a young black male uh, who was killed. And, you know, there's uh, lots more to that story, but it was very high-profile. And the independent report that was written concluded that institutional racism was prevalent within the police force. Um, I think that has some correlations with uh, social work. but I also think that we need to also talk about um, racist policies and their effect uh, on the experiences of uh, social workers of colour and service users of colour as well. 
Absolutely. And the analysis we should have as social workers is that we're always looking at policy. Yes. Right. And mm. I think one something that is important to point out, you know, and, and you're right that institutional racism is not unique to social work. It's across all or you know, all uh, fields, professions. But social work is is different in the sense that we say we're all about social justice, mm. right? Like some of these other professions don't claim to be <laughs> that. So we're claiming to be something and then we're not, yeah. right? So yeah. I think that also is a barrier mm. to then doing um, work on it. I was wondering, you know, because then it's kind of like what you said, like when people are like, well, I'm not racist. It's like, where are the racists? You know, yeah. you're not racist. I'm not racist. <laughs> yeah. But yet the, the actions are racist mm-hmm. because they're supporting, you know, these racist policies and these and, and harm is being done all under the guise of social justice. Yeah, I agree. And, I, I, you know, in terms of my experiences of social work, there are, I observe that there is a kind of complacency um, where people think, well, you know, I learned about this stuff at uni. Um, or as you say, it's kind of something that is discussed in social work. It's referred to perhaps more than other professions. So because of that, people think, well, you know, we're doing our bit. Um, other professions aren't or other professionals aren't. Um, but I do think, uh, there is a big difference between talking the talk and walking the walk. And in academia within social work, uh, in England and the UK, you know, there is a strong body of work around, anti-racism that as I say I wasn't really aware of um, prior to George Floyd George Floyd's murder but I've certainly unearthed it in the last uh, year or so um, and then there's other interrelated um, aspects as well or kind of you know kind of uh, interlinked uh, factors such as cultural competence for example and um part of the rhetoric within social work in England at the moment is around equality, diversity and inclusion, which then considers the range of protected characteristics such as disability, gender, sexuality uh, and so on. Um, but also then looking at it in terms of ethnic um, ethnic diversity, cultural diversity, religion, um, the inclusion of people from some of those uh, minoritized groups. But my critique of that, I suppose, is that um, it's very necessary to look at things from that perspective sometimes, but not all of the time. You know, sometimes we need to look at these things um, in terms of their uh, individual um, kind of validity, I suppose, and their uh, individual relevance in a particular situation and kind of deconstruct and reconstruct that. Instead, there seems to be a sort of tendency to just look at things in the round, um, would be my view. And I think that, you know, that disadvantages all of those groups, really. Yeah. I also think, you know, I, I was taught about cultural competence, you know, in social work education. And I wanted to be, you know, like a good social worker and... um as someone who's white and male, I wanted to like be culturally competent. And then over time, I've learned that there's actually a really strong critique of cultural competence Mm. as um, perpetuating racism in the sense that we can't be competent, number one, in someone else's culture. This whole Mm. idea of like competence is a very like 
power ego type. That's true. And also it doesn't have a power analysis, right? So like cultural competence is like, to me, anti-racism would have an analysis of power, like Mm -hmm. who has power, um, predominantly white people, Mm -hmm. right? And who's being targeted historically and currently people Mm -hmm. of color, Mm -hmm. specifically black folks. And then on that scale of black proximity to blackness, right? Yeah, yeah. And cultural competence doesn't really address that. It, it's like, okay, so I'm of this culture, you're of that culture, let's just learn each other's cultures and everything's good, <laughs> you know? I do. Um, yeah. And I would say every day is a school day because I've not really um, considered cultural competence, I suppose, to that um, degree. You know, I'd learned about it as part of my studies going back some years and it's something I'm aware has been critiqued. Um I suppose, speaking quite honestly, I don't really consider myself as an academic, Shimon. I've always considered myself um, as a practitioner when I was in frontline practice in different roles. And now, um, I mean, I've not been in frontline uh, roles in my role at Basworth for four years. um, But since I've been doing the anti-racism work, uh, I've seen myself, I guess, more as an activist now. Um, So in terms of talking about it, you know obviously I'm doing a podcast so it's slightly ironic but I don't really almost want to focus too much on the talking about it because there's a lot of talk that's going on if you see what I mean about anti-racism but in terms of outputs and outcomes uh, less so so it's more about just getting stuff done for me Um, you see what I mean so um, in terms of cultural competence I suppose there are different ways in which what we're talking about can be framed and can be articulated um, but for me, it's like, well, whatever we're calling it, great. Let's just crack on and do it. Do you see what I mean? Uh, yeah, and if we don't you're get about it right, the action. Exactly. And if we don't get it right first time, then we just go back to the drawing board and say, right, how can we, you know, how can we improve that and refine it? Um, so, yeah, that's my emphasis. But I appreciate it's not uh, universally, uh, you know, kind of, I- I'm sure not everybody sees everything from that point of view. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it takes a lot of different folks, you know, would, Mm. um, to, to do this work together and, you know, let's, let's get back to that part. So I know in your writing, you talk about being pure, proactive and unapologetic. Yeah. You know, what does that mean to you and how do you put that into action to get back to the action part? Okay. So, um, being pure, proactive and unapologetic is really about, um, me not speaking on behalf of anybody else um just speaking for myself really which is difficult to navigate sometimes um but it's also about i guess me being quite uh forthright and uh militant i guess uh in some of the uh, ways that i've had to approach anti-racism in social work just by sheer virtue of the fact that you know i'm up against white supremacy aren't i basically i'm putting myself and the um you know everything that i do in the spotlight in that regard so i'm very aware of that so that can't be i can't approach that in a way where you know i'm just going to be like a a daisy in the wind (laughs) i've got to be able to withstand um certain pressures um, some of which I'm fortunate that as we've talked about in social work, people are a little bit more, um, aware of some of these issues, but of course, racism still exists as we know. 
Um, but I'm still faced um, at a kind of personal, uh, professional, um, in a cultural way by um, factors of white supremacy, both directly and indirectly as a result of that. So that requires me really to be pure, proactive and unapologetic, you know, combative at times, um, militant, but not in a way that's, you know, uncontrolled and savage or, you know, subhuman, as, some, as sometimes black people can be framed, but just in a way where I think anybody who feels like they're in, put in a desperate position where it, it's literally life and death for some black people, that's, you know, it's for some people it's like they'd be an end all of their careers if they are, you know, potentially going to be struck off the social work register for, you know, institutional racism. Um, so that's why I have to sort of um, conduct myself in that way. Um also then, I mean, just to dissect it a little bit, pure in the sense that I believe that I'm authentic and I'm fully committed to anti-racism and I embody social work values. I don't kind of, uh, that might sound quite egocentric, but I just have to believe that that's what I'm about. And, you know, I, I kind of try to, um, I try to keep uh, reassuring myself of that by doing certain things, both personally and professionally that make me think, yeah, you know, I'm as pure as I can be. Proactive in the sense that I've done a lot of work off my own steam uh, with the support of my colleagues and my organisation and members. Uh, and I've got a very supportive manager who I consider to be a mentor and an ally. I don't say that lightly. Um, nonetheless, you know, most of my anti-racism outputs over the last 18 months have required me to instigate uh, them Um and I don't say that to sound big-headed, it is just, you know, it's fact. And I think the report I referred to um, that was published for George, Floyd, George Floyd's anniversary kind of evidences that. Um, and finally, unapologetic in my language, tone, decision-making at times, as I mentioned before, you know, I've had to be assertive, I've had to be bold and a bit ruthless, really, in some of the articles that I've put uh, arguably put my neck on the line, raise my head above the precipice, you know, the hammer of white supremacy is probably waiting there somewhere to put me back in my place at some point. But I just felt I needed to do that to resurrect the importance of anti-racism in social work, really. You know, you've mentioned a few times as we've been talking about, you know, I get like a sense of like, I don't know if you would frame it this way, but I kind of get, so tell me if I'm off, okay. but this like vulnerability, this position of vulnerability that you're in, mm. um, because you're doing this work and you're doing this work as a black man. That's the one. Yeah. In this white supremacist society and yeah. how it spills into the profession. And then, so I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit more about that and like, where do you see, you know, pushback kind of happening on what you're what you're working on? Well, the pushback, I think, um, presents itself in different ways. Um, sometimes it's just a stonewall silence from those who, you know, you um, would look to to uh, make some change Um um, push some influence in their their particular space or their particular remit or responsibilities. There's just a stonewall silence. So that's one particular reaction. Um, others are sort of seek and destroy. 
And I think that can happen both at an individual or interpersonal level where people might not even know they're, they're doing it sometimes. It might not even, they might not even be consciously aware. But there can be almost a, it can feel like people trying to trip you up or make things more difficult for you. Or, you know, I've talked about some of the projects uh, I've been involved in, but those were just tip of the iceberg, to be honest. There's been an absolute plethora. Uh, and with that, um, I would say, um, actually, <laughs> it's been fairly uh, straightforward in that as I say I've had to be a self-starter with stuff and although you know I've collaborated and I've tried to partner with people um, at, you know in, uh, both internally within my organization and externally I've had to be quite dogged really and narrow-minded um, so in some ways I've shielded myself from that um, also COVID has helped <laughs> inadvertently really with the pandemic and working from home I've just been a lot more productive uh, where I would normally be traveling the country and you know um, maybe not not as productive because of that so because of those things um, I feel that I've perhaps been shielded from some of uh, the silence and the uh, the attempts to trip me up but they've been there nonetheless and um, I suppose more more recently um i've become more aware of that and i've not only had to manage the uh you know the challenges and obstacles of championing anti-racist uh sort of social work i've also had to then use some energy and some headspace for navigating these you know um unfortunate events shall we say that arise um where you would expect people uh, both near and far to kind of know a bit better really and to sort of um, I guess show more loyalty to the movement um, and so that can be both disappointing um, but also I guess it um, it fuels me to want to you know push on. Do you, do you have concerns of you know what could happen to you within social work based on the work you're doing? Um I suppose I'd be, you know, fibbing if I said it hadn't crossed my mind. But um, I'd like to think that, um, you know, I'm quite, I'm not a religious person, but I am a spiritual person um, in the sense that, you know, I I don't try to, you know, I believe in karma and those sort of things, for example. And I don't think there's anything that I've done which I uh, feel uncomfortable with, both currently or in retrospect. Uh, I'm aware that, you know, even innocent black people get mauled sometimes. Um, and uh, I suppose I have to just kind of focus on the positive and be optimistic. Um, and I'd like to think that I've never been critical of individuals, um, more about um, policies and structures and organisations. And I think that although it's been robust challenge at times, it's always been uh, professional. It's always been coherent and credible. It's always been evidence-based. You see what I mean? So although the rug might get pulled at some time, at some point, you know, well, I just have to deal with that in the, in the same way that everybody has to deal with the, the challenges that life throws at them. Um, but one of the most important things for me is being able to rest my head easy at night, knowing that I've done what I can do for the right causes, um, because the situation is so desperate, really, locally and globally, that it just requires me to do that. So I just, you know, I can only hope that karma looks on that favorably and the other spiritual ideologies that I'm into. <laughs> I really appreciate you sharing that perspective, you know, and kind of 
that deeper sense too of like what fuels you. Um, I think that's so important because this is hard work and mm -hmm. everyone doing it from, because I've talked to so many different, you know, I'm always talking to different folks is there's that fuel. Like people have to have that fuel and then keep refueling yeah. because it can get, you know, it can deplete. Mm-hmm. Oh, it can. And, you know, I've had my moments. It's not all, um, it's not all sort of, uh, how can you say? Although I guess it may appear because of the social media persona and the, you know, the various outputs, as I said, that there's been over the last year, I think there might be a tendency to, to think that um, he's just all, you know, he's happy all the time. He's always upbeat. I'm sure my wife would tell a very, di a very different story. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I know that, I'm not always cheery and like uh, all the time, but you know, you can't be with anti-racism in social work. You know, we're not talking about, um, you know, X factor or, you know, stuff where, um, it's just all fairy and light. It's serious stuff. It's life threatening stuff. It's career ending stuff. So I have to counteract that. I feel with, um, bringing a certain, uh, charisma to it, but it's difficult to maintain and I don't achieve it all the time. <laughs> Are there specific, you know, kind of like agenda items or policies that you're currently working on as part of an overall anti-racism agenda within social work? At a policy level, yeah. Um, there's a couple. Well, um, there is uh, an advisory group that I'm now part of, which is, um, it derives from a government department, the Dependent Department of Health and Social Care, um, and it's a standard called the Workforce Race and Equality Standard, which will be uh, rolled out across the country. Um, we're currently in the kind of the early stages of that, uh, and it's around collecting the data of the um, the workforce in terms of their uh, their ethnic diversity, the experiences that they have, the outcomes. Um, in terms of, you know, kind of uh, complaints um, and various other metrics. It's very much in the early stage and I'm, I've only just, uh, I think we'll be having our first meeting, uh, proper meeting next week. So I'm really pleased that at a policy level nationally that that's something that a government department is supporting. Uh, and obviously I'm pleased to be part of that. I'll be very much kind of uh, pushing the anti-racism agenda, of course, as well as... Uh, um, raising the profile of social work generally because sometimes I think it is overshadowed by the health service uh, in our country. Um, don't know if you're aware of that or if there's a similar thing that happens in the USA. Um, so that's one area of policy that uh, I'm involved in. Um, the other area, I suppose, are, are less formal than that. Um, I've written extensively about the regulatory standards which uh, social workers uh, held to account over and, and the fact that they don't explicitly include anti-racist, anti-oppressive or anti-discriminatory um, values and ethics. Uh, it's something I feel strongly about and, you know, my organisation, Basworth, uh, are also uh, on board with that campaign. So that's something that is ongoing that we're hoping that, you know, we can work with the regulator um, to try and uh, revisit those standards. And also, um, at the moment, those standards refer to social workers' kind of general conduct and interactions with social, uh, sorry, with service users. Um, 
given the events of the last year, um, I think it's probably also important that we include the relationship, uh, the conduct between colleagues as well, in that that needs to be explicitly uh, included about that being, um, you know, kind of anti-racist, anti-oppressive, um, because there is um, a lot of racism that goes on between colleagues. Um, there's also a lack of um, accountability in terms of employers uh, and what they should be providing in terms of protections and support uh, for social workers of colour. Um, so there's some interwoven kind of separate but interwoven um, kind of uh, campaigns there which uh, I think it's important that social work generally gets on board with in this country. Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about that final piece you were saying about the protections for social workers of color and, mm. you know, why those protections are needed? Mm -hmm. So the protections are um, how I envisage, how I envisage this is um, institutional racism, uh, you know, um, clearly exists uh, in abundance, um, as I've mentioned before. And it's as if that is just completely ignored for social workers of colour and they're expected to just get on with the job anyway. So the racism that they might experience from service users, so children and families, adults, family, you know, uh, other professionals and so on, that's one aspect of it. But then they've got the racism they might get from their, uh, their colleagues, their employers, um, the racism they might face in terms of career progression, um, all sorts of, you know, uh, multi-dimensional and um, racism but also racism that will affect people at different stages of their, of their careers potentially um, and there's just no regard for that um, and so I think it's important that there are protections put in place at a kind of organizational level or local level but also a national level as well um, that recognizes that there is this additional burden that social workers of color have in comparison with their white colleagues and with that should be um, the necessary support. Um, and I've written an article on this, which is called uh, How to Promote an Anti-Racist um, Culture in Social Work. And it outlines different solutions that I feel uh, could really help social work organisations or, or any organisation really, but because social work's my bread and butter, you know, that's what I talk about. Um, but there's lots of transferable um, solutions there which aren't necessarily going to break the bank either. It just requires, um, I guess, a new way of thinking, um, a different reframing of how protections and support are provided, not just for people of colour, not just for social workers of colour, but for all um, the cultural or um, diverse needs within the workplace based on people's protected characteristics. Do you see what I mean? Um, so ideally, um, it, it might look differently in, in different organisations, but there's an overarching uh, national framework that kind of um, it gives employers something to aspire to, to be a, a held accountable to, um, for social workers of colour to complain to, perhaps, if they feel they're being mistreated. Do you see what I mean? Whereas at the moment, we just don't have any of that, and it's just like, just get on with it basically. Mm. Yeah. So we'll definitely link to that article. I appreciate you, you know, sharing about that. And just to kind of touch on solutions, you mentioned one that there would be like these mechanisms that social workers of color would have protections, they'd be able to bring up um, 
incidents, you know, of mistreatment that they're experiencing? What what are just like maybe like one or two other solutions that you touch on? Okay, well, in the article, there's actually a framework as well that I created called the Anti-Racist Commitment Framework, which gives an overarching uh, perspective on um, how uh, anti-racism could be implemented within the workplace. So just to give you a brief overview of those then, um, the first strand is around accelerating diversity within an, an organization. Um, so building a workforce that's reflective of the local community. Uh, and then in, in the article, I give a few examples of how that might be done. Um, the other strand is about educating, empowering and equipping the workforce, uh, which is about uh, training and development and ensuring that um, anti-racist training is incorporated, but also um, caters for people's different learning styles. So not on an individual basis, because, of course, that would just be you know impossible. But rather than just, you know, a one size fits all approach, there's actually some different um, uh, types of uh, training or um, professional development that people can tap into based on their particular learning style. Uh, and again, I give some examples. Another strand is leading by example. So how senior managers uh, and heads of service um, can um, demonstrate that they're committed to uh, working in an anti-racist and anti-oppressive an anti-discriminatory way and instilling that within the workforce and then the final strand is about building transparency so that's using um, data um, not just collecting data um, but actually using the data that we have to uh, implement some of the protections and support that I mentioned before. That's great thank you for covering all that I just ha I have a couple other questions okay. for you as we get towards the end of our discussion and again i'm so grateful for this conversation me too um and for the work you do and i look forward to continued communication yeah me as well how so how do you see you know i know you've written about kind of like some of your background in some of your writing mm -hmm. how do you see race and class intersecting in terms of like it, the how it impacts who you are and how and what you bring to the work you do mm. Well, I spoke, at, um, I spoke at an event recently um, called the Working Class Academics uh, Conference, where I got to uh, present um, almost, I guess, my life story or my pathway into social work, um, which was a little bit like This Is Your Life, if you ever saw that program back in the day. I don't know if you got that in the USA. Um, so, yeah, it was, and I'd also captured it in the book Outlanders that I referred to before, uh, in a story called Ambition Navigation, which charts the pathway. This opportunity at uh, the conference was uh, about presenting that to an audience uh, virtually. So it's actually very timely that you asked that question. Um, in terms of my background, um, both my parents uh, have been in uh, sort of reasonably paid jobs, not um, not fantastically paid, but certainly quite unpredictable at times. and. You know, I've had to, uh, we had sort of free school meals and things like that on occasion. And, you know, I come from a predominantly white British council estate uh, in Sheffield. Um, so my experience is probably quite unique compared to um, some other uh, black guys, you know, from similar um, sort of Western, uh, West Indian backgrounds, such as myself. Um, so because of that, I, I suppose, you know, it gave me, um it gave me a unique outlook as well and um 
some of that I, sort of involved me falling into social work by accident, which I cover in the story. So I'll not, uh, you know, kind of steal my own thunder. Um, but by falling into social work, it kind of, I guess, it just took me on a bit of a conveyor belt, uh, if I'm honest. That you know, I found myself sort of making decisions, going for jobs, um, really kind of um, wanting to make a difference, I suppose, without me ever really consciously thinking about it. Uh, and then now I find myself in this position where all of the things that I've previously done, which is quite a lot of different social work roles, such as um, working for a youth offending team, um, I've worked with care leavers, I've worked with foster children and families, um, I've worked with, you know, kind of adult offenders, various things in the frontline roles that I had. But looking back, it was all kind of, you know, probably getting all spiritual, but it was as if it was meant to work out that way really for me to be able to have all the kind of um sort of internal resources that i need for what i'm doing at the moment um i suppose the other thing i should say is that although i come from a, a very working class uh, background and i'm very proud of that and i do wear it like a badge uh, sometimes when i'm around sort of middle class people and you know social work can be quite middle class uh, in the uk i find myself maybe talking a bit broader without even realizing it or you know body my body language might change without me being consciously aware um so yeah i do wear it as a bit of a badge of honor and uh, i'm fortunate enough to live in a fairly affluent place at the moment so again i find myself um switching into working class mode sometimes um down at the pub inadvertently um, but I'm very proud, as I say, of the working class roots that I have. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. So what do you love about this work? Um, do you mean anti-racism specifically or social work generally? Well, at this point for you, can you separate that? Um, kind of in the sense that, you know, we talked about this kind of resistance, I guess, that there is in some ways to anti-racism uh, within social work. And because, and you know, I'm not in a frontline social work role, both of those things kind of mean that what I'm doing is almost, it feels at times like working, it's a bit insular, um, possibly because I'm working from home as well, and I have done all throughout mm -hmm. the pandemic. Um, so it just feels very insular and very um, as if, uh, as I said, it's just a bit of a, a silence from, from some quarters. So... Um, in terms of uh, being able to separate it, I can easily do that sometimes. It's difficult to separate the work-life balance, in honestly. That's one of my, my challenges. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not so difficult to separate the anti-racism from the social work because it's a bit like, well, the way I go about it as well is that although I specifically budget as anti-racism in social work it's actually universal as well it, it's applicable a lot of it is transferable to other professions and you know I've, I've um, worked with people on the periphery of social work and some from you know completely different um, professions as well so I, I sort of want to keep that universality about it um, and obviously I badge it as social work, but there is this kind of gulf it feels like sometimes, sadly, just because it's, it doesn't always get the kind of reception from those with power and influence that I would like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as we're wrapping up, what, you know, since you're on this platform, you know, and you've got the mic, <laughs> any, you know, final thoughts you want to get out there to anyone who's listening or reading the transcript? Okay. Um, 
I suppose um, just do the right thing. <laughs> Might sound really simple, but just do the right thing. You know, when faced with um, evidence, um, base your thinking on that evidence. And then when you get a new piece of evidence, you know, put the two together and join the dots and, you know, just keep doing the right thing each time. Um, that's my uh, that's my kind of simplistic way of, of concluding this. And in terms of race, I think, you know, just look at all the outcomes. It's overwhelming, as I was saying before. It's abundantly clear who's at the bottom of the food chain as far as socioeconomics, sociopolitics, you know, not just... Um, uh, in England, but globally, you look across the world, you look at the history, you know, it's, um, it's kind of just, it's, uh, overbearingly clear, you know, that, uh, black people, people of color, uh, are sort of at the bottom of the food chain, as I say. And although there are shining examples of, uh, black people being successful, some of it is about how we define that success as well. Because if we're talking about success within a capitalist culture, then is that really success? Is that just material success? You know, for me, I think, uh, I'm a bit deeper than that, as I was saying before. And I think, you know, we need real equality, uh, in terms of the way that black people are positioned, uh, globally. Wayne, thank you so much for your message, for taking the time to talk with me and come on doing the work. And most of all, thank you for doing the work out in the community. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. And when you uh, reached out to me and said, you know, do you want to come on doing the work? I thought, well, yeah, because I am doing the work and I'm, you know, I'm literally, and it might sound a bit egocentric that, but I sort of feel like I do live and breathe it at the moment. Um, so I really appreciate you inviting me on this because, uh, you know, um, it is a great opportunity. I'll continue to do the work best I can. I know that it won't last forever. You know, I'm conscious that there's a window there. And there's also a kind of limit that I have to put on it as well. You know, that's the reality. I don't want to sort of, um, you know, I've been referred to as the Malcolm X of social work uh, from certain people uh, in England. I don't want to be framed as that individual all of the time, you know, for the rest of my life. But whilst I'm doing this, I'll do the best I can. So thanks ever so much. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place. Thank you.